Welcome, Building Brands listeners. For our 27th episode, I'm joined by Ryan Menke, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing at OFS. For OFS, caring about people isn't just a behavior or a belief, it's a calling. It's not just about being a furniture company. Through the things they make, the interactions they're a part of, and the values they represent, OFS sees the opportunity to change lives and plant a future for our children's children. In this episode, Ryan stresses the importance of maintaining and staying true to the brand of a multi-generational company. He points out ways that a family-run business can stay objective and avoid tunnel vision throughout its history so that it doesn't fall behind in the market and continues to meet the needs of its evolving clients and growing team. Enjoy the episode. If you're an owner or marketer in the building materials manufacturing, distribution, or contracting spaces looking to set up your brand for success now and in the future, this is the podcast for you. On this show, we talk about brand and market strategies used in the real world that grow companies and truly connect with consumer audiences. So sit back, listen in, and let's get to it. Okay, welcome Ryan Menke, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing at OFS. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Glad to be here, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let's start with uh, giving the people a little bit about you and the company. So why don't we tell you, or why don't you tell us a little bit about your professional background and how you got into uh, OFS and into the building products and, and building space? Yes, I guess uh, I was born into OFS. It's our, our family business, so uh, we always joked we uh, grew up drinking lacquer and uh, eating sawdust <laughs> as kids. But uh, I've been in the company now. I think I'm going. I don't even know, uh, 19 or 20 years, but uh, spent uh, the first four years uh, out of college as part of our family rule, working for somebody else. So uh, actually sold insurance door to door for a year, about the only thing I could find to pay the bills in, in 1999, and then, uh, and then moved away from Atlanta then to St. Louis. And that's really when I started getting back into the industry. Um, I worked for a furniture dealer uh, in St. Louis doing new business development. And I guess being out there representing the company, showed me the passion I had for the company because originally I had no desire to come back and work for OFS. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I took the MCAT, GMAT, and LSAT. I was really conflicted, but at least I had test scores that allowed me to go chase whatever I wanted to do. But but after getting in the field and kind of understanding more about the company and what we represented it and how the market responded to that, I, I started getting drawn back. And uh, there was a point in my career where I interned in our warehousing division and and my longtime mentor in that group uh, abruptly passed away of cancer at, at the age I am today. So after a search, they decided maybe it was right for me to come back and and run a trucking company at uh, the ripe age. I think I was like, I don't know, 25, 26, something like that. So I had absolutely no idea what I was doing and had to admit that on day one, but just begged for some time and forgiveness as I figured things out. From there, I pretty much worked everywhere in the business but finance. Uh, they don't need me there or want me there. I know enough to really mess stuff up, but spent 12 years in the supply chain operations and logistics side of the business. And then as of uh, 2013 in October, I got a phone call that my predecessor had moved on to another company and uh, my dad would like for me to step into that role. And so uh, been doing that ever since. Absolutely love it. You get to use you know, the left side and right side of your brain each and every day. And I love every element of the whole creative side of coming up with a concept or an idea of a product or a brand all the way through the execution and sales and, 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 uh, you know, hitting goals. Cool. Tell us a little bit about more about OFS. It's a multi-generational company, as you mentioned, and that's how you ended up coming back and getting involved the right way, as you sort of described. 
Um, how long has the company been around? And tell us a little bit more about who you serve and, and those types of things. If you go all the way back on my grandmother's side, uh, we started making covered wagons in the 1800s, uh, made our last one in 1897. And then the company's kind of rebirthed a bit in the uh, early 1900s. Uh, we really say 1937 is the kind of the current manifestation. So, you know, going into uh, our 84th year here in furniture specifically, we've been a lot of different things, quite frankly. We were residential furniture and Venetian blinds at one point, uh, actually mixed in some wood basketball scoreboards. Nice. Uh, at a point in time, it was uh, it's kind of a funny story where my grandfather and all his brothers were all American basketball players. My grandfather and his one brother ended up playing on Indiana University's first ever national championship team in 1940. Nice. Um, and they were just good athletes, and they played a little fa- a faster paced game, and the scoreboard wasn't keeping up. And my uh, great grandfather got so frustrated that he got with a local engineering teacher, and they designed a lighted scoreboard that could keep up with the pace of play. So. <laughs> We fell into scoreboards. But after about 50 years of residential, uh, my dad was, uh, um, he was out in uh, Thomasville, North Carolina, working for uh, uh, High Point Furniture and our Thomasville Furniture. And he had seen everything at the time starting to shift to Taiwan. And it raised a lot of red flags for our family business. So he moved home uh, in 1978 and convinced his dad that it was time to make a massive pivot. And that pivot was completely out of residential furniture and over to commercial office furniture. Leveraging the skills we had in wood and and case goods specifically, you know, he tells us every day that if he and his father would have known how much it was really going to cost to make that pivot, he's not sure they would have done it. But once they Hmm. were committed, they were committed to seeing it all the way through. I mean, they both mortgaged their homes multiple times to, to make this transition. So, it really, we're a fourth generation business, but we almost think of ourselves as a first or maybe second generation because we seem to reinvent ourselves generation by generation as times change, customer profiles change, the markets changed. I mean, really, all of our growth has come under uh, my father's leadership since taking over in 1983. He's grown as you know multiple times over. So you know, now in our current uh, manifestation. We're uh, really trying to, how do we preserve this legacy for the next 83, 84 years? So are we doing the right things today to make sure that we can be successful into the future? I mean, I've got myself and three siblings are now actively involved in the business, which is unique. It works great though, because we've all kind of settled into completely different areas of the business where we can leverage our skills the best and provide the most value. So it's, it's, it's interesting. For us, legacy really isn't a business model. It's more of the impact you can have on as many people possible. And when you're looking at it, that legacy also can't be an anchor, right? Mm. So it, it's, it's, you, you've got to hold on to the values and of who you are, but not necessarily the business model itself. Uh, you've got to be comfortable, you know, disrupting yourself. And we've all, you know, dad's always said that. He said, we've got to be our one more critic, we've got to point out our flaws before we allow our competition to do that. Do that. So we take that to heart and, and try to live that every single day. Man, the legacy not being an anchor thing is probably the quote of the episode. But we'll see where this goes. We'll see where this goes. You you did mention about how you pivoted into the commercial space. So who are you primarily trying to reach with the business right now? Is it interior designers? Is it actual business owners? Who's the who's your like kind of target pool that you're trying to do business with? Can I say yes to all? Uh, so, you know, our industry is so interesting. It's um, It's got so many layers to it. And as an ex-supply chain guy, it's kind of hard to 
wrap your head around all the different hands that are involved in executing a project. So they're all important in different stages of a project, whether it be, uh, you know, ultimately the ultimate decision makers who you want to get to, right? So that is different on every project. You know, it used to be pre-COVID, it was, you know, it was really starting to get dominated by corporate real estate, uh, as mm. well as facilities. I think post-COVID, A&D community is going to continue to reinforce their strengths of, you know, human-centered design and design and not only for physical safety, but psychological safety. But I think that that also then brings your human resources group is going to uh, have a much stronger seat at the table as well as your health and safety and even maybe even legal. So we just think that you kind of got to meet your customer where they want to be met at a particular part in that journey until the end. Cool. All right. We'll get back into the generational brand stuff because you started to touch on that. OFS, you know, 80 plus something years and it's sort of current iteration of furniture in general, whether it was the pivot from residential to commercial. It's and you've you know, evolving from covered wagons even, which just makes me think of Oregon Trail. So my mind is wandering right now. What do you think has kind of balanced the company between its exponential growth over the last 40 to 50 years and also kind of staying true to itself to be able to make it through all those generations and and carry on the way it has? I think there's a few things in there. One is you've got to constantly be evaluating your actions against your values and do they align? You know, your purpose and your promise and your values should really not change that often. They do evolve a bit, but they shouldn't change. So I think part of that is, you know, being a real hard critic of yourself, making sure that people are living those values, which is it's an ongoing effort, right? So, but we also surround ourselves with people we aspire to and that's evolving, right? So what, you know, got you here won't get you there. So I think that's an ever-changing group of people you should be surrounding yourselves with. We rely on an uh, outside board of directors. There's a few family members on the board, but the majority is outside from all different disciplines so that we get a very well-rounded perspective. We get a group that holds us accountable. We try to, even though we're a privately held company, we try to run ourselves as if we're public. And so Mm. I think that's helped us a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, I think those are a lot of, a lot of things and it's, you know, from, if you think back to the the kids is making sure you're telling the stories a lot so that you're, you're telling stories that reinforce the behavior uh, that you expect now and in the future uh, that can come down to either work ethic or yeah I remember early early on when my dad doesn't remember the story but I remember it vividly I was you know little league age and he was missing all my games and I was pretty frustrated with him right so I was like hey why aren't you at my games all my friends dads they're there they're coaching where and he goes you know son you gotta remember you gotta understand we have two families we got our family at home and then we have our work family and they're both very, very important to us. And so, you know, at the time, I think we had 400 people working for us. Um, he said, so if that's the average American family, it's a spouse and two kids. So we're responsible for 1600 people and putting, you know, clothes on their back, roof over their head, food on their table. And that's a responsibility we can never take too lightly. So there are sacrifices we have to make in order to, you know, make sure we're taking care of everybody. And that, that never really resonated with me. Actually, I didn't like it <laughs> as a kid, <laughs> um, you know, cause you're thinking about you and want your dad there to, to see you strike out. But later in life, as I got more involved in the business, it really became a lesson that, that, you know, just echoes true over and over and over again. It's, even now that we're, I think we're, you know, right at 1700 people now, it doesn't, it doesn't change that dynamic, just makes it that much more important. 
in order to be able to reinforce those values and keep the vision and mission, everything moving forward, that's that takes with that level, I mean, seventeen hundred people within the company locally, and I'm sure through the network across the country, a high level of reinforcement, frequent reinforcement to be able to to maintain that level of buy-in from from a workforce that size. Yeah, I think you uh, a couple things. I think it requires a ton of communication, uh, right? You got to be communicating those values. You've got to be calling them out on the good side and the bad side. Uh, it's always that, you know, praise in public, coach in private thing. So mm-hmm. you know, we're also blessed to be surrounded by some of the best leaders I've ever worked with. I mean, our executive staff is, you know, absolutely phenomenal. And, 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 and my, you know, team I get to work with every day, it's, I, I haven't worked with a better group. So I, I think that continues to reinforce by the people you have in your organization. So let's talk about getting to this point. Uh, let's kind of break it down into each of the generations. What do you think the focus of the first generation was? You know, your your grandfather, let's, let's consider the post-wagon era. What do you think the first iteration of the furniture version of OF, OFS was really focused on in terms of what his goals were? And then maybe follow that up with your father's uh, generational input and then how you and your siblings are starting to take it now. Really, my great grandfather uh, really kicked it, kicked off the furniture side in a serious way from a business standpoint. And it was I think he was driven partly because my grandmother's family didn't want her to marry him. So he had this drive <laughs> to prove that he was uh, more than capable. And turns out he was an absolute amazing businessman. But he was also super creative. So not only did he run the business, but he also designed all the products. I mean, I've got his sales kit on the shelf behind me that he used when he traveled as a salesman. But, you know, kind of always back against the wall. Like you said, they're the ones out there pioneer the brand. I mean, I remember uh, my grandmother's story of him driving around Illinois and he wasn't coming home until he sold a desk, but he gave himself one week. And if it wasn't sold at the end of that week, he was going to close up shop and try something new. And he just, he, he made it happen. Then they merged the businesses after the, you know, kind of before World War II, but after World War II is when my grandfather got more involved in he wanted to actually be a Supreme Court justice. So the business for him was kind of a uh, lifestyle business. It, it afforded him to chase his passions and pursuits. And most of those are around uh, environmental sustainability. He, uh, he actually established the uh, Indiana Nature Conservancy. He, uh, hmm. he acquired acreage all over uh, the state of Indiana uh, due to erosion from industrial ag and, industri- and just in industrial manufacturing. So he was a very, very strong environmentalist. And then once my dad came back and had this new spark and energy and brought, you know, this just new life to the business, actually, my grandfather started to get really interested in it when my dad was starting to have some success was that there were some very interesting uh, uh, dynamics in that transition that, that are etched in all our memories of those two kind of battling for control of where we were going to go. But that's why we call ourselves a first generation, fourth generation company. Because my dad really is that pivot. I remember living out what my great grandfather went through. So every time we go on vacation, we'd have a cargo van and we'd have a little miniature desk return in the back of the van. And we'd stop at dealerships on the way to Florida, trying to get somebody to mm-hmm. buy into this company that my dad was starting. But the thing that I've always respected about my dad was he he's such an unbelievable motivator. Like he just he's so good with people, but he's also obsessively curious. And we're lucky enough that he's passed that on to his kids that 
I mean, he just, I remember his kid always having a stack of books on his, on his nightstand. I don't know if I'm trying to be him or what, but I had the same thing, right? So we're all voracious readers, but we also like to get out in the world and experience it. I think that helps knock down biases because experiences are just biases, right? Um, yeah. Um, so if we can get out and experience more, it gives us more context and more understanding uh, of the world around us. I think that's what's allowed us to continue to grow and evolve and grow and evolve was that insatiable appetite for new experiences and never really hanging on to anything as precious other than our values and our purpose and our promise. So, and that is really that our mission is what we make people feel is as important as what we make. And, you know, that goes for our, uh, clients as well as our, you know, all of our employees. So I think that's really been the most important piece in all of this is that is that obsessive curiosity and the ability to continue to grow and evolve and grow and evolve and look for new opportunities and intersection points where you can leverage skills with market needs. It sounds like the your great grandfather and grandfather kind of set the foundation for that. You know, that ultimate creativity is what drove the initial product line. They set the foundation. They built stability. The business was a thing, had legs. Your father kind of saw a pivot point, reinvented it, made it grow from there. You guys are taking it from, from that aspect. Is there anything along the way that you've recognized you need to watch out for to make sure that you don't hinder the growth process or evolution of the company? Complacency, bureaucracy, mm. and politics. They'll kill an organization faster than anything. And I think inherent in all those is ego. I mean, we have a saying, leave your ego at the door and your title at the door every time we get together because we want to make sure that every voice is heard, every voice is heard equally. Yeah, it's uh, those three things will kill any organization. And so we just, we won't, we won't let them in. If we start to see it, we address it. If it's not corrected, then we have to make a change and, and, and which, which happens over time. You have to be willing to, you know, evolve your organization to never allow that to happen. Yeah. And you said, you talked about this earlier on when you were talking about how you got back involved with OFS and working the other positions in the company. I just had a multi-generational distribu distributor co-owner on in one of the past episodes and he same type of approach for his uh, family's company work, the, the ways that the people that we have on our team work and learn how their days go and learn how these things work together and, and, and understand why we're doing this. And if it still suits you and your interest is there and your motivation is there, we want you as part of the next uh, iteration of the company, the expansion, whatever, growth, uh, extending the vision into the future. So, But there's a lot to watch out for because you're, you're mentioning the ego, like just stepping in because you think you deserve it because you have the family name or you know the growth or money is there and you just want to step in and start taking advantage. That's not the right way to evolve a company, let alone carry on a brand strategy and the mission and vision uh, through what you're doing. So I've, I've heard that theme a lot talking to multi-generational owners. And I thought it was also interesting when you're talking about each a phase of the company too, even the, the thing like going out and trying to sell the desk in one week, completely different sales strategy for startups back in the 20s and 30s than it is today. Today, it's like, can we drop 50 grand in, in social and digital ads and see if anything happens uh, before we take off? Uh, doing the vacation trip and stopping at distribution or retail centers on the way down. There was no internet. It was phone book, travel. Things have obviously evolved. And, and there's, well, we'll see what happens post-pandemic, but there's some hybrid of maintaining those customer relationships. But you do see 
travel, becoming more of a, you're our existing customer, we're keeping the relationship with you healthy versus a customer acquisition uh, strategy. So it's just interesting to also just, you, you just subconsciously like slipped in that progression in marketing tactics too and sales tactics, which was an interesting thing I wanted to point out. And the other thing you talked about was sort of having like objective regulation. You talked about the external board of directors. There are other aspects that affect the company too, like who you work with, what what uh, products uh, you're being strategically told you should evolve in. Right, what else are you doing to just make sure that you know you're not mistakenly deviating from from where you should be going with the company? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that just goes from being tuned in the market and 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 making sure you're like truly seeking out information to learn, right? You don't want, you don't, if you're just going out to ask questions that reinforce the thing you want to hear, that's not doing you any good. So I think, you know, making sure that you're, you're listening, trying to read between the lines and macro trends, you know, uh, we do a, a exercise a few times a year and we, we, we map out truths versus trends mm-hmm. and trying mm-hmm. to understand, you know, cause you don't want to react. Like we, we, we try as an organization not to react to anything. We want to respond to things. And there's a big difference in, in that to us, you know, reactions are, you know, spur of the moment in the heat of the moment, a response is, is calculated, right? It's, it's contextual. We, we really try to, again, absorb as much as we can from as many different areas as possible. We participate on tons of different boards, whether they're local uh, philanthropic boards, it helps us understand kind of macro contextual issues. And then from a micro industry specific thing, is having lots of conversations. I mean, we we have a a, a podcast uh, called Imagine a Place, which you know, so we're interviewing thought leaders in and all around our uh, our industry, so we can kind of understand what 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 they're seeing. And then we also participate, you know, in the International Interior Design. Just had a roundtable that we were on, and then just talking to clients. I mean, no one knows more about what they need than the the, the than the people that are you know experience and you know your products every single day so we try to stay on the phone i mean i'm on the phone i bet 60 70 percent of my week just talking people in the market i mean nobody is buying furniture where we manufacture here in honeyburg indiana that's not Mm. where we're selling we're selling all over the country all over the world so we want to be on the phone understanding you know market movement you know, where opportunities, what's, what, what needs aren't being met and then trying to, you know, weave that into those macro trends. So we filter everything through four filter sets, which is all things digital, all things human, all things design and all things sustainable. And so we bring all that information kind of together and then try to redact that down or distill that down into uh, market strategies. Obviously, as you said a minute ago, digital is COVID accelerated that by 10 years. Oh, I mean, yeah. Incredibly. Yeah. it's uh, it, So everything we've seen beca- in COVID were already things that were well underway. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just increased everything exponentially. So we pivoted very hard with our marketing efforts. We had to learn how to launch products without a physical show to do it at, which is traditional for our industry. And, you know, our team, I, I couldn't commend them more. I mean, they got so just raw and vulnerable and just tried new things. And we all had to learn how to get comfortable on 
you know, shooting videos, which is for most of us is not our thing, mm-hmm. but you know, we did a lot of video. We, we found new venues to showcase products. We found a lot of new tools and technology for virtual showroom tours. And, you know, luckily for us, we had brought on some uh, digital expertise about, about two, two and a half years ago. And that, that really helped us pivot even harder uh, in, in 2020. Let's talk about what you and the current generation are doing. Just a little bit about what you guys got going on, what you're, how you're trying to make your mark on OFS right now. And you talked a little bit about, uh, I loved the four buckets you were talking about, trying to figure out how to uh, really work with people. But you, I also, from our previous conversations, know you did some work on your internal product categorization and, and segmenting too, based a little bit off of what you know about the market and also just kind of like taking the age of what's happened throughout the years at OFS and reorganizing into a more uh, appropriate, manageable uh, thing to, to deal with. So if you could talk about that a little bit, like what's the mark that you guys are trying to make while you're involved with this iteration of the company? Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that we're trying to leave a mark. What we're trying to do is make sure that whenever we're done, we leave the company in the best possible position and all the, and by company, we mean our people Mm -hmm. in the best possible position for sustained growth over time. So I think businesses are a lot like tax code. They just keep adding layers and layers and layers and layers. And nobody ever goes back and says, is this really the true essence that we set out to do? Or have we just kind of created you know, this, this, this thing that we now have to deal with, it's so complex and, and, and hard to understand. So we really went through a, a real soul searching effort of challenging norms and, you know, Hey, now we're up to six brands. Do they all have, do they all really have a value prop or are we just holding on to something near and dear? And, mm. or is there one element of risk that's got us all just paralyzed to make a decision? And, and we made some pretty, big moves uh, about three years ago, I guess now, where we collapsed six brands down to two. And we did a, we use an outside agency to test theories with who push us out of our comfort zone a lot. And that kind of helped us through that effort and to really find our voice and brand ourselves. So first was trying to simplify the offering. Mm-hmm. Somebody famously said that, you know, anybody can make something more complex. It, it, it takes no ingenuity to do that, but it takes, you know, real effort to simplify and distill down uh, something to its essence. We really try to distill it down to make it easier to interact with us, make it easier to engage, find what you're looking for and, and not have to, you know, I, I, what I think it's, uh, uh, gosh, the guy that used to run, uh, marketing for Harley Davidson. He is, his theory was simple. It's brain equals pain. Every time you make a customer think you've lost them. And so we try to live that philosophy and, uh, and, and distill it down because we also knew that we we're going to grow. We're going to grow. And so, and we've been very acquisitive in the way we've grown. So uh, we bolt on companies through acquisition that fill in, you know, either product voids or mm. uh, most of the time it's market voids. So you know, 10 years ago, let's see, 15 years ago, and that's now, uh, we were an office product only, really only focused on wood case goods. Since then, we've, you know, we, we acquired our way into healthcare. We expanded into pretty much full facility solutions in workplace. We acquired our way into education. We acquired our way into hospitality. So we knew that with that, we need to kind of narrow the narrow the brands because we knew we'd add some back over time. But we now have a very disciplined filter set for whether we'll keep that brand name or not as we acquire and move on. 
That's good. That's good for some future proofing too on all that work that you did. Yeah. God knows we don't want to go back through, uh, you know, <laughs> that again, because rebranding, I don't recommend it to anybody more, maybe once every 50 years, because it's, it's super expensive. It's difficult, but it's absolutely paramount to get the brand right. Um, Cause that truly is, it's, it's the manifestation of who you are. And if you let it go too long, it will spin out of control. You'll end up with sub brands that have you know, which is fine to some extent, their own websites, but the websites are completely misrepresented or you'll let one brand go uh, just stale, both from a technology or a messaging or a market approach value prop. Your value prop is that you can uh, support 12 phone books with your piece of furniture. It's probably not a good value prop anymore. So you like, you know, stuff like that happens when you ignore crap for like, you know, 20 to 25 years. So the, the rebrand is... It's painful. It's time consuming. It can be costly, but it, it is, you know, 50 years might be overkill, but 30, 30 years or so, you got to be thinking like, have we either followed our path the way we intended to well enough that we're in decent shape and we're looking at more strategic shifts or tactical shifts? Or do we have to actually just reorganize everything a little bit and then set the foundation for the next 20, 30 years? So it, it is something that needs to happen or you'll just your salespeople be driven nuts. Your customers won't know who you are. Your team might not have that thing to grab onto to to like believe in. Uh, you know, you keep talking about this theme of family and values and, and supporting each other. It's hard to do if you have a schizophrenic message all over the place. A hundred percent. And you you know, and salespeople. I mean, as a sales guy, we want everything possible in our arsenal, right? But you know, in that same period, we cut a hundred products collections out of our portfolio and grew. Kind of that whole Apple, you know, they had five products on the table that would fit on a 42 inch table and did billions of dollars. I kept playing mm -hmm. that tape in my head, right? Just like we we can do more with less if we can just clear up the messaging. And, and when you acquire, you get a lot of product overlap. So uh, we had to clean all that up. But and the last element of that is you have to have the right team to execute that vision. So. Mm. That was a big thing for us. 80% of my leadership team is different today than it was when I walked in the door in 2013. Either some didn't agree with the strategy or vision and couldn't get behind it. Uh, others just were unwilling to change. And, you know, some were just not equipped to go where we wanted to go and, and didn't want to, to make that, you know, make that change. So we, we brought in a lot of folks uh, into our organization to to get us where we are today, and um, you know I, I couldn't be happier with 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 them and their their level of tenacity. There's two levels of objectivity that you bring into this, which are great to just reinforce again. One is your internal leadership team as an internal diverse group of individuals that might share the same direction that they want to go with with their conversation, but all have different inputs and, and insights to help make it a stronger direction. And then two, you are working with outside vendors in a support role from sales strategy, marketing, and, and all these other types of things to be able to have objective input and collaboration on to, to test what you're, you're thinking about internally too, and bring new ideas to the table. And those are very important things to avoid tunnel vision and thinking, you know, just letting things go by you without noticing them because you're just stuck in your ways. Yeah, and, and so we, we had a rule that we set going through all this is, and if everybody agrees, then we're absolutely not going to do it <laughs> because that means somebody wasn't being honest in the room. And mm -hmm. so that we, we actually use that a lot as we went through this transition because there was passion 
behind these brands, right? I mean, some of these people are brand ambassadors for a brand that's been around for a decade. Of course, you've got passion around that brand. But if you're going to tell me that you can just nonchalantly move along, then you're not being honest. So we really, you know, we really forced everybody to put it all on the table uh, in order to make sure that when we came out of that room, we were all on the same page and, and nobody didn't get a, a chance to, you know, to air it out. So let's talk a little bit more generic, just in general. How do you see the building products industry shifting over the next couple of years? And you can relate this to anything you want, short term or long term. Yeah, it's a great question. I think Stan McChrystal's book, Team of Teams, is going to be a predictor of the way work is done, the way uh, education is delivered, the way healthcare is delivered, and therefore the way building products and the, you know, just the entire built ecosystem will look. I think that we are going to be much more distributed. We, there were some really positive things we saw in the pandemic, which were, you know, zero commute, zero small, mm -hmm. you know, less stress. You know, we have the opportunity to improve work-life balance a bit. If we can set those boundaries appropriately. So I, I believe you're going to see a more hub and spoke distributed model of buildings that get as close to where people live as possible. I mean, this this experiment that Amazon's got going on in DC is a is a great example. I mean, it's got everything for their employees to kind of never leave campus. So there's some good and the bad in there. I mean, you know, we've 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 been really kicking around this idea of these this micro economies, almost going kind of like way back to you know pre uh, uh, steam engine era, right, where you had everything you needed in your local community and you kind of mm. stayed isolated. And that's a concept we really keep pressure testing. But, you know, then you, if you get take that from into the built environment, I think that the building itself, like traditional services that buildings provide will continue to get deconstructed. So we had plumbing at one point was all kind of came through the uh, building in one set of infrastructure and then we come out to a water fountain. Well, now we got water coolers everywhere. We have to have fresh water everywhere. I mean, we just got well platinum certified which I think is a whole nother movement you'll see, but which requires water every hundred feet uh, within every mm. working work zone. But then you, and then you think about, you know, what happened to uh, uh, internet, right? It was cables. Now it's wireless lighting. Uh, we've got a lighting solution that decouples furniture from the grid because everybody thinks that furniture is flexible and mobile. What only is relative to the light grid. True. Yeah. So, you know, well, actually right behind me, we've taken all the light grid out and we use this direct and indirect lighting system on our furniture that allows that furniture to be a lot more flexible and mobile. You know, we have a product called Obeya that is kind of a room within a room. It actually means large room in Japanese. And, and it it's really this idea of soft architecture, architecture that can adapt uh, with a client in a very iterative, fluid, fluid nature as their needs change. Because I think that you know we're not going to do linear work anymore. We're not going to sit here and stamp checks and and and, and process paperwork. We're going to be you know what humans are great at um, and separates us from technology. And what we're going to do in this next economy, the creative economy, is find innovative uh, new ideas that come from collaboration. So and and that's going to be very project centered. So I think the next thing probably is in ventilation and air purification. I think that. If you look at what would have to or what has to happen in order to create a cleaner uh, environment from an air quality standpoint, above and beyond even what well or lead ask, in, when you look at from, say, UVC lighting or other things to help purify air for you know, things like the COVID virus, 
I think that may be the next thing. You know, we're looking at it very hard in order to create not only actual physical safety from an air quality standpoint, but psychologically, I want to be able to see that the air going into that and coming out of it is clean because you're giving me a, a, a display that says, you know, that says that and it gives me an actual readout because once it goes in the building infrastructure, you can tell me it's good. I don't, I don't see it. And right now I think mm. people are so anxious about this. So I think you're going to see that continue to pull apart. And I think that, you know, you're going to see much more um, mixed use development. You know, I think that's part of that whole community concept. Yeah, uh, definitely the commercial spaces are going to change. That's for sure. And that will likely force some building owners to re- repurpose parts of their properties to be able to adapt for what might be smaller offices or whatever it might be to making it more of a campus feel. Re- regarding brand itself, brand strategy, market strategy, what's one thing you think everyone should be absolutely doing right now for their, their own brand? Get vulnerable. Be human. I think that that's probably the most important thing a brand can do right now is stand for something, you know, which is typically your purpose, promise, values, and mm-hmm. um, and just be human, be raw, be authentic, be transparent. Today's buyer is, can see right through a veneered facade. They know when you're faking it, right? And so I think with digital allowing what it allows, and that's quick brand switching, I think you better be really vulnerable and human. And with that, you've got to have a great digital strategy. You said it earlier on the cold calling with a desk versus, you know, doing paid, you know, media today. I'm involved with a couple different startups and it blows my mind uh, and makes me very anxious about our business, making sure that we don't become that aircraft carrier in a pond trying to turn around. We, you know, we want to be a feisty little battleship and so we're trying to constantly look around us to make sure we can disrupt ourselves. And I think digital is going to be paramount to that strategy. But, uh, you know, I see I see good and bad examples of it. Yeah, it's like if you try and take an old brand into digital without actually addressing the brand first, it's like that meme of Steve Buscemi showing up with the skateboard being like, hey, kids, what's up? <laughs> right. Like You can't just like force it in there. You got to set it up so it, it, it can be that adaptable <laughs> battleship when you get in there. So that's my joke for the episode. Is there anything I haven't brought up that you want to reiterate or did we cover everything that you think is valuable for the audience? No, nah, I think you did a great job. I mean, hopefully your audience finds a nugget or you know something of value in the conversation. I mean, it's just uh, sharing our experiences and and what's got us here. And uh, but we also know that's not what's going to get us there. So we're trying to just keep pushing the envelope. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Before we wrap up, why don't you let people know where they can find out more about you and more about OFS? Yeah, you can find out about OFS, www.ofs.com or in, on any of the uh, social platforms. And uh, uh, I'm active on LinkedIn at Ryan W. Minky. Awesome. Thanks for being on. Appreciate it, Tim. Thank you, buddy. If you're interested in hearing more stories and strategic insights from industry experts, please subscribe to the Building Brands podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. If you've enjoyed this episode, please post a review and share with others who may be interested as well. Thanks for listening.